In this episode, special guests Delson Armstrong and Dr. Ruben Laconin discuss their latest groundbreaking paper, Cessations of Consciousness in Meditation, Advancing a Scientific Understanding of Niroda Samapati, in which Delson Armstrong's ability to enter the rarefied state of Niroda Samapati, a feat of extended cessation achievable by only the most virtuoso meditators, was tested by Dr. Laukonen's neuroscience team with astonishing results. They join the ongoing discussion with Shinzen Young, meditation teacher and neuroscience research consultant, and Chelsea Fasano, a Columbia University neuroscience graduate. Delson and Dr. Laukonen tell the story of their study, how it came to be, the various tests they administered, and why they believe the results are so remarkable. Delson describes the meditation method he uses to enter into the state of Niroda Samapati and to stay there for up to seven days. How he can determine in advance to the minute when he will exit the state and the profound effects on the mind after a period of extended cessation. Shinzen analyzes Delson's abilities, probes the mathematical models used in the study, and shares his own work creating enlightened AI arhats. The panel also discusses possible scientific connections between Buddhist doctrines such as the five aggregates, dependent origination, and the three gates of liberation. Wow, I am delighted that the stars have aligned, if you'll excuse the pun, forgive the pun, to allow such a stellar lineup to come together here to discuss this fascinating new paper, Cessations of Consciousness in Meditation, Advancing a Scientific Understanding of Niroda Samapati published very recently in the Progress in Brain Research Journal. Um, we have our illustrious panel here, Shinzen Young, Chelsea Fasano, thank you so much for joining us, along with very special guests, Delson Armstrong and Dr. Ruben Alakonen. So in a moment, Ruben, I'm going to ask you to summarize the paper for us. But first of all, I wonder if you would both mind saying, perhaps starting with Delson in just a few words, what your role was in this study. So I was, I was the subject, I was the guinea pig here in this, uh, in this uh, research. And Ruben, the lead researcher, is that the right way to characterize it? That's right, yep. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so Dr. Ruben, would you be so kind as to give us a brief summary of the, of the study and how it came about? And then from that point onwards, it's open for dialogue. Sure. So excellent to be here and uh, really, really wonderful to um, um, have this happen so, so quickly after the paper came out. Um, so <clears throat> the paper is about a very interesting state um, called Niroda Samapati. And the way this came about was that I was uh, uh, hanging out with a friend of a friend um, and uh, he was quite a serious meditator himself, and um, uh, he he told me that he has a uh, a meditation teacher of his that can do something very unusual with his mind, which is essentially to turn off his consciousness uh, at will. Uh, and along with that goes things like experiences of time, of space, of self, basically everything we take to be part of our. Uh, subjective experience um, with no experience of anything hap happening in that uh, period of what's known as cessation or uh, niroda or niroda samapati, and it's in in this specific case. 
Um, and when I heard about this, the way it was uh, pitched to me, I, um, uh, I have to admit I was initially very skeptical. Um, in some ways, uh, th there's parts of me that um, still harbor the skepticism, and I'm, I'm excited for future research about this. But the way it began is he, he told me about this state. I was very skeptical, and then he pulled out his, his phone uh, and showed me this uh, time series of uh, neural data. Uh, specifically spectral uh, data. So you see things like alpha frequencies, beta frequencies, gamma frequencies, and so on. And it was done with one of these um, this kind of market EEGs uh, known as a muse headband. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I was, I was showing this, this, this little time series. I think it's about a five-minute snippet. And so you can imagine there's this five-minute snippet of neural activity un unfolding, and it all looks very normal except for about uh, just about 10 seconds before the end, there's just this complete flatlining and then a return up. So all of these uh, neural frequencies in the brain in this sort of, you know, very um, uh, home science sort of job, that they seem to briefly disappear during the specific moment that this cessation, uh, this absence of this meditation induced absence of consciousness occurred. So, um, this was, of course, fascinating as a scientist. Um, you know, I had a lot of alarm bells ringing at the same time. I thought, you know, this is not a rigorous device. This is not something we would use in the lab. You know, we use something much more complicated with with many electrodes in on the head. This is just a kind of band on the on on the frontal frontal lobes. Um, and so you might have something that's going on there. For example, there's just a failure in the capacity of the system to transform um, the data to, to, to under, do whatever transformations it needs to get those frequencies out because that, you know, you have to do uh, some transforms to the data in order to, to actually extract these, these particular neural frequencies. Um, so, so, you know, I was expecting there's all these possibilities going on, but this, this kind of made me curious enough to kind of follow this up. And, and, you know, I, I, I'm also have been a meditator for um, 15 years or so. And so, you know, having experienced some very strange things, I, I, I was kind of probably more open-minded than the other scientists in the lab. So when I brought them this uh, prospect. Um, it was um, initially a bit of a hard sell, but then uh, we, we, we... <laughs> you know, I saw that movie. It's called Flatliners. It didn't end well. Not to interrupt, but they made a movie about this, right? We're going to flatline. And now it's like, right. what? This is a that. little cinematic and a little hard to believe. Yeah, no, it, it was really wild. And and of course, there's this sort of both excitement and skepticism sort of all blended together and this sort of curiosity. I mean, this is this is really the the I think the right scientific attitude is to to be curious. And and so I brought it with this sort of spirit to to my collaborators and, and the professor I was working for at the time, Professor Helene Slagter, who's sort of the co-PI on, on the project. Um, so I brought it to her and 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 we discussed it and we thought, hey, we should at least have a um a uh, a conversation uh, with this with this interesting meditator. And so we set up a zoom call to to chat with um to chat with Delson. And there was a few of us there, and um we were really uh, impressed by that conversation. Um, and and we talked to delson. he he described how, you know his 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 background, how this came about, you know how it's described in the in the suttas in classical Buddhism, 
he describes what the actual phenomenology is. And it, it was really when um, Delson describes the experience of how one enters through the um, different stages of um, uh, meditative deepening where, where this then, then unfolds and also the reemergence from that state that I think all of us were, were somewhat more convinced that this is, this is possible. And the reason for that is we'd recently developed this kind of broad theory of, of, um, of, of meditation from the perspective of predictive processing, which are these new um, overarching models of the brain. And when, when Delson was describing this deconstruction and reconstruction of the mind, um, it resonated super well with our scientific theoretical work about um, how the mind constructs itself in each moment because the mind is made up of layers and, and so on. And so there was this sort of resonance and also with, for example, Helene, who's, who's herself not a meditator at all. And, you know, a long time in the field studying meditation. So very much sort of clear that these things are doing something, um, but not at all sort of otherwise inclined to believe these, you know, out, outlandish claim to, claims if there's not sort of evidence and, and, and the more extraordinary the claim, the more extraordinary the evidence. But she also, if I, if I can speak for her, was very much resonating with this description. And we both sort of think all of us that left that, that meeting felt sort of, hey, there might be something here. Another thing we we're very much impressed by was um, Delson's very... Um, open op the real openness to be rigorously tested and the sort of sobriety with which the whole thing uh, was described um and 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 this suggested to us you know what what would he have, have to gain by you know making this up and you know if, if we take take him into the lab this this can only kind of look bad if, if it doesn't uh work out that there's something going on anyway so th this this sort of discussion really um heated things up and and got us excited about it and um uh, and, and so, so we got to work kind of designing an experiment very quickly. We had a, have had a short amount of time before Delson actually was arriving in Amsterdam though, or I think, I think it was that the, the, the trip sort of came up spontaneously and we're like, okay, he's, he happens to be here. Let's, let's make this happen. Um, so we moved very quickly and, um, came up with a, 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 a an experimental design and tested him over a couple of days. Uh, mostly doing EEG work, but we hooked him up to all kinds of other measures. Um, we did two days of testing. And on the first day, we presented stimuli in different states of meditation, focused attention, uh, in sort of a control condition where he was just watching a documentary. And then um, also during the uh, neurodesomopathy, the cessation of consciousness state. And we repeated this multiple times, presented some stimuli, um, and took the EEG and, and, and different physiological data. And then we moved on and did it the uh, following Monday. So that was a Friday. And there we uh, had three conditions. We had a nap condition, we had a um, cessation condition, and then a control condition again. And the logic there was, what's the difference between this state and sleep, for instance? Um, so, you know, th there's a huge amount of data to analyze and given this sort of um, how sort of, again, extraordinary this state is, we are really taking our time with doing the data analysis where being careful to replicate. We are analyzing and reanalyzing. I am having people analyze it who are skeptics um, and who have um, no interest in the data coming out the way you know, we might want it to come out. Um, so, I, so we're being very careful about it. Um, and this recent paper was very much a kind of initial conceptual overview of Neuroda Samapati. And, um, 
you know, what it actually means for our understanding of, of the mind and consciousness, assuming that this, this capacity really is possible, this capacity to at will kind of subdue your own conscious experience, which is very interesting because you imagine this agent being a construct sort of within our conscious experience. And yet somehow this agent develops the capacity to turn itself off. It's kind of, kind of mysterious in this way. And so we kind of took a theoretical approach to it, trying to understand what is the process that's unfolding um, there and also kind of just provided a kind of taste of some preliminary data that might be going on there. And we, we, we gave that taste because coincidentally, our colleagues at Harvard from Matthew Sackett's lab um, there were had their own meditator there doing these sort of brief neurota cessations, which is a little bit different from neurota samapati, but also has this quality of a brief absence of consciousness. And they found something interesting, um, which we might go into in more detail, but is this sort of breakdown in alpha synchronization or functional connectivity in the brain. Um, and so we thought, hey, let's first try to apply this to our data. We found the same thing um, for cessations. So we thought, hey, look, this seems consistent. There's probably other people interested in this. We know they're interested. So let's let's write this paper, theoretical overview about what this state is, what it means for science, give them a taste of you know what what we think is a robust finding across the two labs. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's much more to, to come out. And, and, and I, I think as a caveat for the rest of the conversation, I don't, I don't want to speak too much about the other data because I can say it's, it's interesting and, and, and I'm probably most excited about that data even more so than, and what we have so far released, but I don't want to talk about it too much until we're super confident about what we found, found. So that's the, uh, by, by the other the data, you mean Matthew's data? Or... No, our data. So, so we have we have this EEG data, but EEG data can of course be analyzed in in all sorts of ways, right? So we can look at spectral frequency, and we also presented um, stimuli. So we can look at stimulus responses in the brain. Uh, we can do machine learning on the data, and then we also have this physiological data, and also potentially, you know, interactions between physiological and neural data. Um, so all all of this, where we're still uh, unpacking, yeah. And it's very rich. And we have two days of testing as well. Um, and then Matthew also has has his own uh, uh, more data coming out soon. So that's that's the story. <laughs> that's wonderful. Thank you, Ruben. Now, I think we've got a few options, but we might turn to uh, Delson. And perhaps, Delson, you could say a little bit your your side of the story, if you like. That might be interesting. Or we can open straight up into into dialogue if if there are if that's if that's coming up. I'd uh, lobby to hear Delson's perspective. Can, can I, I ask just quickly? You a question? Uh, yeah, go ahead. And and just very quickly, I just wanted to say um, also a huge thank you for Delson for being a participant in this research. And um, you know, it's it's been super exciting for us. And um, I hope this uh, kind of initial data is also uh, exciting for for you to see. We haven't actually spoken since it came out, so yeah, that's right. Yeah, Chelsea, sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say, but it seems although you're still in the process of analyzing this data in a very thorough way, which is exciting because I don't know if everyone does that. Um, the the initial results do show similar decrease in alpha. Is that correct? That you found. That's right. So it's specifically a, a decrease in um, uh, neural synchronization uh, in the alpha band, which in some ways I think is actually more interesting, though we have data around this sort of increasing and decreasing of the different mm. um, frequencies as well, which is 
Audible will be coming out later. But this this alpha synchronization, um, you know, to put this in really simple terms, um, it's it's correlations uh, between um, uh, different electrodes on, on the scalp. Mm -hmm. But what, what this is suggesting is that different areas of the brain, because different areas of the brain are usually kind of um, linked together functionally. Mm -hmm. And that functional linking between different areas of the brain, as, as you probably know, is um, maps onto kind of correlate very simply like correlations between the activity of two parts of the two parts of the brain. So if the activity here is kind of consistent or related over time to the activity here, this suggests that they're somehow functionally linked to each other. Um, and you, at, in, in most cases, you do get this sort of fun functional integration between different brain regions to different degrees in different states. And so what we find is that sort of this functional integration, the, the, the let's say the message passing between different regions of the brain or that sort of kind of indicates us breaks down uh, and, and quite quite dramatically. So yeah, so you can say- But I think the issue is, the issue is the specific way it breaks down. It's, it's a way of it breaking down that can be f formulated with mathematical formalisms. So how would you characterize this particular flavor of disconnect? It's in the alpha band. Can you give some more sort of put it in a moduli space or put some parameters to it? It's this is, is the, is the type question, of do, breakdown. Yeah. Is the question, what do I think it means? No. Or, uh, no. What does it look like mathematically? How, how would we distinguish it or characterize it? Uh, <clears throat> uh, okay. It's a, a form of um, uh, interference yeah. with functional connectivity. What yeah. kind of interference with what kind of functional connectivity? That yeah. that kind of so, detail yeah. is what I'm interested in. What it means, I, I think I know what it means actually. <laughs> okay. Uh, so to be honest, I, I might not be able to answer your question um, um, satisfactorily. Um, but I, I can say that what, what the actual measure is, and, and we, we might be able to, or you might want to look into this a little bit in more detail, it's called phase lag index. But phase if, if you, lag index. Exactly. So it's called phase okay. lag index, the, the actual measure. Oh my um, God. Okay. Uh, I mean, if it means what I think it means. Uh, okay, I've, I'll look into it. Cool. And I, and I, I mean, very simply put, there's different sort of measures, of course, you're completely right, different ways of mathematically trying to formulate that, that correlation over time. But if you, if you imagine that there's two, two, two waves um, and the extent to which those two waves are kind of either moving together or one is lagging behind or going faster than the other one, I mean, it, it, this is the sort of simplest way of understanding it. But, but the, the, honestly, the, the, the underlying mathematics of, of the phase lag index um, measure, I, I'm not familiar with. Yeah. So it is um, in the alpha band. Not in, right. not in the gamma band that you're interested in. Wasn't Matthew interested in gamma? Or am I conflating his work with someone else's? Uh, there, there's, there's definitely people who are interested in sort of, yeah, gamma-related activity due to meditation because we've seen changes there before. Of course, we've seen also changes in, in the alpha frequency. Alpha yeah. is, is the kind of strongest and most powerful frequency that, that we see in the brain and is, is sort of 
implicated, I think, in, in, in a lot of different tasks uh, and, and certainly in meditation. But, um, you know, the, we found the, the effect in the alpha frequency, but of course, we also looked in, in the other frequency bands, but the, the effect was uh, consistent and robust in the, and in the alpha this frequency. And this is between what region or regions? Uh, so whole, whole brain. Yeah. Whole brain. So yeah, this is like connection. whole brain. So we're spatially looking at the whole brain. We are uh, temporally look, uh, uh, and we are frequency band and wavelength wise considering alpha. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at a global phase lag index, an index of how in phase or out of phase the, the global. So yeah, exactly. okay, yeah. good, that's clear. Delson, did you wanna jump in now with uh, your side of things? <laughs> sure, uh, so I this started actually in 2000, I would say probably mid or late 2019. I was in San Diego at the time, and I got an email from David Johnson at the Damasuka Center, and he said, "You know, we have uh, we have a meditator who has uh, a bunch of these uh, EEG headbands, these uh, Muse headbands, uh, who's offering it to different meditators within the community. And would you be interested in uh, taking a look at it and seeing if you'd like to contribute to any kind of uh, findings we get?" I said, sure. So they sent me a headband and uh, I had done different things with it. So, you know, looking at each of the jhanas, going through jhana one, jhana two, all the way up to neither perception, non-perception, and then uh, also going through Niroda. So, you know, I, I submitted whatever I had um, done. And then I think it was later uh, in 2020, uh, that I was connected with uh, another individual. I think this is a mutual friend of ours, Ruben, who basically said that, you know, would you be interested in uh, being part of uh, some research in Amsterdam? So that was how we got connected. And uh, I met with you and uh, uh, Dr. Elaine and uh, a couple of other people on the call. And we went through we went through, basically, they had asked me all kinds of questions about, you know, what is your experience day to day? What happens when you go into this state? And I gave them an understanding from my perspective, which is really more sutta based, more experiential, what happens through each of the jhanas as I'm going through them. And then as I'm going into Niroda, what's actually happening? So I, I talked about the way I do it, which is starting to see each of the five aggregates and then letting go of uh, each of the five aggregates, seeing the impermanent nature and, and so on. And then what happens is before that, there is an intention. So there's an intention to say, you know, you'll be in the state of Niroda for five minutes or, you know, three hours and uh, 49 minutes or something like that. And so I, I do that and then that's it. There's just this blank, no idea what goes on and then come back up. And I also explained how, 
you know, I went through this process. It was actually pretty rigorous training uh, beforehand, which uh, Bhante Vimaramsi had me going through, which is what we call jhana hopping, right? So you start off with going through each of the jhanas for a predetermined amount of time uh, using a clock uh, with the second hand and then going through it, uh, you know, for a few seconds in each jhana, maybe 40 seconds, maybe 30 seconds, maybe five seconds in each jhana and then skipping jhanas, going from the first jhana to the fourth jhana, going from the fourth jhana back to the second then going into infinite space and so on. And then once the mind is that malleable, you start to go into experiencing the ability to go into Nirodha at will using um, this particular exercise. So that's what I explained to them. Uh, and then uh, it seemed like they were pretty interested afterwards because then there was an invitation to see if we could. I was in Cambodia at the time, I remember. And I think what they wanted to do was actually visit me in Cambodia and see if they could do some preliminary uh you know experiments there just, just then, curious however, what what yeah. were you doing in cambodia i was uh well i was in india before then i was in uh, i was in an extended retreat this was during the pandemic uh and then in august uh, my parents were in cambodia at the time so i went to go see them and then we just spent time and we spent the pandemic most of the pandemic during cambodia in cambodia uh but uh, I was also teaching there. So I did uh, Dhamma talks, weekly Dhamma talks uh, with people. I did some three-day retreats with people, things like that. And I was also working on a few books. Uh, but for the most part, I was still trying to do my own kind of extended retreat. And then so the idea was that Ruben and his team would come to Cambodia and we would do some preliminary uh, experiments. But then as it turned out, uh, there was an opportunity to go to uh, Amsterdam. And so this was for the purpose of just visiting some Dhamma friends and doing a couple of retreats, uh, things like that. And then, you know, Ruben found out, I, I think, through one of our mutual friends that I was uh, coming to Amsterdam and it was planned out. And, uh, you know, he, he we met. Uh, uh, and we discussed what was going to happen. And the first day was interesting because they put this octopus on my head, you know, the whole EEG thing and everything. And uh, they had some other sensors on me and they put, I sat in a very comfortable chair and he had me basically, uh, there, were, there were three things I was supposed to do. There was a focused attention. There was watching a documentary. It was a Netflix documentary on animals, I remember. And, uh, and then going into uh, Nirodha. And I think we did that a couple of times, if I remember correctly. Uh, and it, the idea was just to stay relaxed and do what you're doing in the chair. That was great. And then uh, the next experiment or the next day was basically probably the easiest I've done because all I had to do was take naps, right? I had to just go into the sleep lab, uh, rest in the bed, but, there were a lot more sensors on me. There was the octopus. There was something up my nose. There was a belt around my waist. There you know what we call that? That's, of... It's a polysomnogram, yeah. right? That poly yeah. means many. It's That's a right. torture yeah. device. You're it's a torture device. Sleep. That's right. That's right. That's right. So they had me go through uh, just, just normal day-to-day, -day, I mean, just normal, ordinary consciousness, as it were. Um, and then take a nap, 
and I think it was like 90 minute segments. So they had me then go into Niroda and I explained to them, well, you know, they said, how long do you need to get into Niroda and all of these things? So I said, you know, I'll just take my time. And then by about 10 minutes, I'll be in Niroda and in, in the 90 minute mark, I'll just start coming up. So that happened um, and came out and they basically came into the, into the sleep lab. They asked a few questions, things like that. And then that was the end of it, really. Um, and then we, I spent some time at Ruben. Uh, you know, we had lunch. I was at his place. We had some really great discussions after that. And, you know, the, one of the wonderful things about this was uh, I made a new friend or a few new friends while I was there in Amsterdam. Mm. Yeah. And, and, I, and I will just say, you know, what one sort of fun thing that we also described, I think, in a footnote in the paper, because, of course, we can't... Um, you know, make a lot of sense of it at this stage without further replication. But we thought we would test sort of this capacity to come in and out of the state um, within the um, expected time. So it was a 90 minute um, uh, period. And we thought, hey, you know, Delson, go into this, go into the cessation, but we're not going to tell you when, when the 90 minutes is up. We're just going to wait for you to indicate to us that 90 minutes has, has passed to test his capacity to, you know, tell the time during the state, which itself is a is a very kind of mysterious process. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we did that and we were observing the different, um, uh, you know, we, we took careful notes about things like eye movements and heart rate and respiration and, and these kinds of things while it was unfolding. And, 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 and what we did end up seeing is that pretty much exactly at the 90 minute mark, we saw eye movements uh, come back online. We saw a we saw the heart rate go up a little bit, um, and and we saw the markers that he is coming back online pretty much exactly at ninety minutes, um, and then uh, a few minutes after that he he reported uh, being awake. So that was also quite interesting. If I might interject one extra data point to round out the story, you're able to enter if you take your time in about ten minutes, and. We're seeing here 80 to 90 minutes in Naroda Samapati in that state. What's the longest that you have personally stayed in the state of Naroda Samapati, Delson? Six days. And what does that mean exactly? Six days of... Nothing going on, just complete blank for six days. And then uh, coming back up online. I think you're muted, Shinzen. <clears throat> During the six days, were you seated or lying down? Seated, uh, sitting in a lotus posture. So this is like right out of the textbooks. The master's hasn't moved for almost a week. Um, uh, fantastic, <laughs> amazing. Uh, too bad they weren't there with all the equipment. <laughs> <laughs> but I think they're pretty interesting. I, yeah. I say let's just do it again, right? It can be. Yeah. How many other people are you folks aware of that have this capacity? Analogous, because Delson's reporting and he knows and you know, this is in the old books and it's not encountered very often in my experience. And that's what the old books say too. You have to have special karma for Niroda Samapaya. You can become an Arhat. 
But Arhat plus Niroda Samapati is that's a, a little bit of a special thing. So now we've got it caught on camera. This is amazing. How, how many other people do you folks know about that have, call it what you want, this capacity that could be part of this research where we would actually show people flatlining to the skeptics of the world? Are you unique in, <laughs> in this regard or do we have a bunch of others lined up so we can do statistics? Yeah, I think uh, in, in the community, uh, there are um, maybe a handful or maybe a couple more as far as I'm aware. Uh, but in terms of their ability to go in uh, with duration, I think you'd have to speak to them about that. But I, I am aware of at least a couple yeah. who are able to consciously enter this, this state. It's been reported by other meditators. Um, I've heard uh, anecdotes of people that I know, even one of my students that when we were at Harvard, he went into it in the scanner for a moment. Uh, that data was never used, but I think we caught it. It was not long, but uh, we think it might've been this. Um, I can connect you with that person if you're interested. They're, they're a, a senior practitioner, but um, you're telling me there's a few more people that we might be able to use and we got you, but it's a proof of principle if it happens in one person. Right. Yeah. This is, yeah. this is a real, this is very significant. Chelsea, you were going to say something. I think you're going to ask a question. I was going to ask you, um, what yours how do you come out of it i mean it's a very for the it's almost a magical idea that you could decide that before you go in and then the sort of question becomes if there's nothing there what is it that decides to reemerge, and how does that function so i'm curious about your subjective experience of that yeah so like i was saying i mean going into it it's like uh it's like a shutting off of functions. And uh, by the way, uh, just so we're clear on this, I did say 10 minutes, but it, this can happen like that. Uh, essentially, the preparation for it can happen in such a way that you're just going through, let's say the uh, neither perception or non-perception state of mind. And then uh, before you do that, you just make an intention of how long you will be in that state and then there's this clarity into the, the nature of each of the aggregates and the mind just disconnects completely from all perception and tension. And then it's like you're sinking into something and, you know, and then when you, let's say you come out, uh, what's going on is that there is this, there's this, there's this rebooting process that happens in reverse. So first, like the, the mentality comes up. So there's, a, there's an awareness that comes up that you're coming up Then there's the verbalizing going on, the, the knowledge that, okay, you're up now and then the feeling of the body. And the subjective experience is just a lot of luminosity, very, a lot of clarity. Uh, everything is like in hyper awareness, hyper dimensionality. The, the colors are very bright. 
the senses are very sharp. But as to that part of the mind that's able to direct the intention of this is how long the mind is going to be in it, uh, my understanding would be, or my speculation about that would be that we talk, we call some, we, we talk about something known as sankharas, and there are probably still some sankharas there, rooted in the intention that is there under the surface, and then those sankharas bubble up as the first part, and then everything else starts to reboot. Let me just make a, a comment on what Delson said, which you might not, if you're not sort of a specialist in this kind of stuff, you might not have noticed, but it's critically significant. He's not just describing a sort of natural shutdown and natural reboot. That alone, the fact that such a thing exists, that, that is in our biological heritage and can be consciously experienced because we have a proof of principle. Here's someone that's doing it under the bright, bright lights of a very skeptical modern lab. So just the fact that that is in our biological heritage to be able to find a natural shutdown and reboot. Whoa, is that a discovery? But the thing I wanted to point out is that is subtle that maybe the listeners might not have noticed. He said you systematically decouple from all the components that create self and world. That's what those five aggregates are. That's the early science of India of 2000 years ago or more. It's not modern science, but there was early science there. And um, they uh, had an idea of how self and world are formed. And it's instantiated in this five aggregate formulation. So you're systematically decoupling from each of the basic dimensions of inner and outer somethingness that creates space-time self-world. But you're also observing them and gaining insight and clarity about them. It's not just a gymnastics trick of shutting things down and starting it up or even shutting it down and starting it up with full consciousness. There's insight, and I'm not gonna speak for Delson, but he'll agree with me. There's a flavor of vishuddhi, purification. You know that this is cleaning out bad sankharas, bad sankharas, bad karma, bad vasana, bad habit groups. You can taste the vishuddhi rasa, it's happening to you, the taste of purification. And there's this clarity about things. Without the purification and clarity, this is a, uh, a magician's trick, in a sense. With those, it's the ultimate life-transforming tool. 
So I just wanted to point out, I see you're shaking your head. I mean, it's obvious to everyone in this room, it may not be obvious that that little comment you were making about things are very clear and you decouple element by element. That's the big early science discovery of Buddhism. Buddhism can't claim to be science, but it's absolutely pre-science. It's early science from India. India can be proud of this early science. What I <clears throat> there's something else that I think is is beautiful about this aggregates idea, and for me it was really an insight moment as I was writing this paper and trying to think of okay, what is a theoretical mechanism for this 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 capacity? Um, and and I, as I was writing that and thinking about our desynchronization findings, there was just this immediate sort of click between this this idea that you are. Um, deconstructing gaining insight into the the three characteristics let's say of the of the various aggregates that are the things that constitute the, the being in the world the phenomenological sort of uh, coming together um, and the fact that you kind of consciously in a way give attention to these aggregates which attention is already then activating them as separate entities rather than as a coherent entity and then recognizing their sort of constructed nature so this this sort of separation and deconstruction makes, uh, I, I think, resonates perfectly what you would expect this sort of breakdown in, in synchronization and neural activity. If you're looking for a kind of physiological, biological correlate of deconstruction of, of one's phenomenological space and, and being. So that to me was really a uh, kind of just, it just felt like a, a, a wonderful connection. And I wanted to just also jump in with, um, you know, regarding this thing of, you know, staying in the state and automatically coming out of it, your question, Chelsea. And um, <clears throat> my thoughts about that are, I mean, I think everyone and, and most listeners have this experience of kind of wanting to wake up at a certain time in the morning and that's sort of kind of spontaneously happening. I mean, clear, clearly the system somehow has this capacity to track time. I don't know whether it's using physiological rhythms or or what. And then there's also this, um, um, you know, when, when we wake up, certain hormones are released, certain activations uh, come online in the body, which then sort of give rise to whatever capacities are needed to wake 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 up the mind. So I, I don't know how this connects to some scars, but just to say that I think also from like a kind of very Western sort of biological perspective, the idea that you can get kind of better um, at uh, timing these things so, sort of makes sense, especially considering what uh, the, some of the trainings that you've done, Delson, that you've told me about around determinations. So actually practicing this capacity to to time uh, yourself. And, and after we had those discussions, I actually tried some of those things in my own meditation practice just to see whether you could sit and, and know when half an hour is passed. And, and I was also really surprised that, that we sort of kind of possess this capacity, you know. I, I heard that, um, um, God, senior moment, um, bear with me, um, Tesla. This may be an internet story that's not true. <laughs> So I, I haven't confirmed, but I have heard it said that he'd create a device, start it working. Six months later, think about it. And it had gone through all the physical wear and uh, changes 
that it would have gone through in six months in his subconscious. It was tracking time and it now shows him what the, how the device is functioning six months later. <laughs> I don't know if this is true, but that's a pretty spectacular timing ability for the unconscious. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. And, and you know, that this is, there, there's so much unexplored uh, territory there um, around, you know, you know how we are tracking these things. And, and, you know, I just think it's also, um, you know, persuasive that we, we have biological rhythms. And of course, uh, many animals are, are capable of, of tracking changes in time and changes in the electromagnetic field and so on. And, you know, speaking briefly, I don't know if you want to go this down this discussion route yet, and I'm not even sure what I think about this, but you mentioned, you know, this, just this fact that there is this latent capacity in humans to turn themselves off from within, from an evolutionary perspective, this is also really fascinating. I mean, we sort of hinted at the possibility that this might point to, you, you know, it's, it's, it's so, so sort of the coincidences and, and the, the resonances with uh, torpor and hibernation are kind of Kind of fascinating um and also the fact you know the meditators going to caves and so on and you know it, it remains to be tested whether a, a longer neuroda has the sort of decreases in metabolic rates and so on that you would you would expect with with animals um, and of course and there's the the dark retreats mm -hmm. where you go in complete darkness three months three years three days people do it wow. yeah. not and not just asian people fascinating I would love to, to if, if you have any um, kind of readings or documents on that, I, I would love to read more about it because as I kind of dive into this possibility more that initially, because I was I was living with an archaeologist, one of my best friends, Igor Jakovic at the time in, 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 in Amsterdam, and he was sort of sitting next to me when we were having this initial con uh, conversation with Delson. And he sort of immediately after the call told me, hey, that sounds like hibern hibernation. Um, and I, I was just like, no way initially. Um, but as I sort of looked at the sort of connections between these, these things, um, and, and also these recent findings just in the last couple of years with archaeologists finding um, kind of suggestive evidence of uh, hibernation, e even in a, a Spanish population sort of 500,000 years ago, um, you sort of get these sort of particular impressions on the bones and and sort of things that are, that are consistent with, with with human hibernation it, it just starts to i, I don't i don't know like well, you see it's <laughs> but it's human it's human hibernation not a bear's hibernation so when a human who has been trained in contemplative skills i'm not gonna i'm not saying this is hibernation it's a reasonable <laughs> hypothesis though that well there's a lot to say but what Delson's describing is a human that is trained in contemplative focus factors and in a certain view of the world based on the three characteristics, which he mentioned. And if people are interested, it's easy enough to find on Wikipedia. It's central Buddhism. Um, I'm going to say a couple things. It may be related to hibernation that doesn't make it unspiritual because it's a human <laughs> with focus factors that have been trained and a very sophisticated on uh, not just ontology but 
yeah, I guess a, a philosophy about how the natural world works. I, I just uh, have to mention that it, in addition to the three characteristics, there's an alternative formulation in the Pali canon that is less often talked about, but may actually be better for the purposes of science. And that's the uh, three gates of liberation. You're shaking your head, so you, you've studied your Abhidharma, obviously. What is sometimes translated in English, well, there is no English translation. Let's just start out with that. So we're not going to get into it because I want to hear about this research, but there's something called the three gates of liberation. And if you go to East Asian temples, in fact, a lot of temples, there'll be a, like a pilo, if you know what that, like a, like a gate in front of the gate, and there'll be like three openings to that, or the gate itself will have three openings. Samman, they say in Chinese, it means three gates. When you go into a temple in China, you go through, there's supposed to be Sanman, three gates. And those are the three gates of liberation. Um, signlessness, um, Forgetting now. Wait a minute. Uh, a luxury. You, you help me, Nelson. Right. Uh, undirectedness. The undirected uh, contact. The signless, and the. Um, it's, hard, it's hard to remember, isn't it? Even though we know it. <laughs> uh, wait a minute. Muso. Wait. I remember in Japanese. Let's see. Muso. That's the signlessness. Mugan. Yeah. That's the undirectedness. And. Um, uh oh god what was just just well, I, 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 emptiness emptiness cool. oh, oh. that's it yeah cool yeah. Uh, shunya yeah empty yes yeah. vacuous so you used a very good translation for apanihita that's the pali from the sanskrit uh Apranidana, apranidana, not a pra forward, ni down, dana placed. It's like that. It's not dana. It's dana, dana. Right. Um, uh, so um, I've all. It's um, often translated as without desire or without will, but undirected is a much better translation. And I half suspect that it course, when they say undirected, it was our earlier human beings attempt to describe free energy change and spontaneity in nature. The just happeningness of things is a big theme in Taoism. It's a big theme in Tibetan practice. It's actually in India where they talk about Sahaja. It's just natural. It, 
it happens of its own. Um, it may be that that is the taste of the nervous system tasting its own effortless free energy change in doing active inference according to Carl Friston's model. If that is correct, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, do we have a relevance of Buddhism to the future of humanity? Can I ask a question about this? Shinzo? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't want to derail because I want to. Okay, hear what okay, these I'll folks save it. I'll doing. save it. <laughs> you get me going, and no one else is in the room. <laughs> well, it was a question for everyone, actually, about okay, this. Okay. What you're saying. So, this is something I'm thinking: is that in the active inference principle, and in a lot of contemplative neuroscience, we talk a lot these days about the idea that when you let go of prediction, you free the system to process incoming sensory stimuli and you get into this kind of blooming buzzing chaos as Shinzen describes it of sensory processing without the uh, weight of predictive coding coming down onto it. Um, and it seems uh, that's a big part of our dialogue, but it seems like what's going on with you, Delson, is that there's not even the blooming buzzing chaos, that that the, the free energy bubbling up through the system isn't even there, that something's going on that's even deeper than letting go of prediction, because it's complete silence. We're not even getting sensory processing occurring. Is that correct? Yeah, there's no there's no processing going on at all in the mind in Niroda itself. So can somehow, I just, yeah. <clears throat> go on, go make on. Some, sorry, just some yes. caveats to to what you said about predictive processing, if I if I can, um, just just to say that it, within the predictive processing framework, perception, sensation, all of these things that we take to be the kind of present moment are themselves um, the output of a predictive process. So th there is no, within predictive processing, there is no such thing as really the raw perception because there's no way to directly access any kind of raw information outside of the body. So as soon as something is interacting with the body, let's say like light hitting the retina or, you, you know, pressure on the body or whatever the sort of gateway is, there's immediately a process of interpretation in a way the body interacting with that stimulus already is a there's a level of interpretation there and then there's multiple levels of interpretation by the time that thing becomes conscious so so all sensory experience and experience of self time space is part of this this predictive uh process and then as a, 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 with regard to like whether you can actually experience free energy in any kind of direct sense uh, that, that that i'm I, i'm not quite sure is, is possible because free energy is more of a mathematical principle. That's sort of what the system is trying to reduce in order to reach its sort of conclusions about what is actually happening. That's sort of the sort of error over time. So that's sort of a mathematical principle, but you know, it is, it is possible that there's this sort of, we have sort of phenomenology about the state of our system. Like when uncertainty is boosted up, like let's say there's a lot of free energy that is felt in the system, um, potentially through affective states and, and stress and anxiety and these, <laughs> these kinds of things. So, so just, just yeah, some yeah. Now, now, Ruben, now we're getting down to the shit. Okay. <laughs> well said and, and uh yes well said uh, that, uh, this is where the pedal meets the, the metal um and um 
I'm not going to go into it because then it's going to be a whole other conversation. But there are classical Buddhist analogs for what you just said, Ruben. And we can go into that. Um, yeah. It's already been covered in the Buddhist tradition, I believe, the, what you're bringing up. But that's going to get us into something rather technical. Yeah, well, I, I do I, think that's also really interesting territory. And I mean, this this happened very much in our writing, sort of our theoretical account of, uh, of uh, meditation that we found resonances in Buddhism that were striking, um, really. Yes. So this isn't going to be the first, uh, I mean, the last time we're getting together to do this. Uh, I, if Jay and I have any say in it, we're, we're going to have more meetings because this is just bringing up so many potentials uh, but i do just want to say without going into the details let's remember everything ruben just said because there's some really interesting stuff in the buddhist tradition that addresses this um but the question i have and i i just got to ask um Delson, you said that your family tradition was Catholic. What you're experiencing was is analogous, of course, from a very different culture and a different worldview, but it is analogous to what Santa Teresa de Avila, Saint Teresa of Avila, would have called um, uh, arrobamiento in Spanish, which uh, was her six out of seven stages to God. Uh, she'd have waxy, uh, waxy catatonia, basically, and they'd come back days later and she was still there. Um, for a long time, when you read her Las Moradas, the interior castle, she wrote it at the end of her life, um, or towards the end of her life, when she had had a very wide range of contemplative experiences within the Carmelite tradition, which she reformed, along with uh, San Juan de la Cruz, St. John of the Cross. They had a sort of priest, nun, reform the Catholic Church in Spain through the Carmelite order kind of thing in the 16th century when the fucking Inquisition is still a force to deal with here. She never got in trouble with the Inquisition. Her father was Jewish. He was forced to convert to Catholicism. And she ended up writing the standard manual for how Catholics are supposed to meditate and its seven stages. Um, and stage number six is close to what we're talking about here. Stage number seven appears to be stream entry or something like that, because she says, this is completely different. This is my mind now works different. The self forgetting is so profound that it seems as though the soul no longer exists. She said that in Spain in the 16th century, 
And no, they didn't give her shit. And no, they didn't hurt her. They said, this looks good to us. We'll make you a doctor of the church, the only woman that we respect as an authority. Well, it's meditation. Maybe women know something about that. <laughs> Who knows? 16th century, Jesus. Give us a break. So um, why am I saying this? Uh, I just got to ask, what does your Catholic family think about all of this? <laughs> Anything? <laughs> Just to get really personal, because if I've yeah. got issues, I've got friends that are rock solid astrophysicists that still want to be practicing Catholics. And I think we should make that possible for them. I want to invite that's um, uh, Jonathan Lunin. I want to invite him on this program. He has a Catholic meditator. No, no, I, he has a Catholic scientist support group. So how do you get those worlds to agree? Because there seems to me to be a, a very, a, a problem between the spirit and achievements of science and what scripture-based and authority-based religions say. Like, they just don't match. I'm just curious how that worked out in your life, if that was not an issue or an issue, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, very simply put, it was not an issue because of the fact that they have no idea that I can do this. <laughs> You've never discussed it? No, no. Do you go to church? Uh, I mean, this is like way too personal. Yeah. It's none of my business or anyone's, but <laughs> just curious. No, no, but, uh... No, I don't go to church. My my mother and my sister, they still go to church and they have their own kind of practices that they do. My mother is also a meditator in her own way. My dad was a meditator in his own way. So my, <clears throat> my family upbringing was such that, you know, my dad basically said, you know, if you want to follow this, you can follow this, but you have your own path and you can do what you think is right. And, you know, explore the world essentially so so he had know, a whatever, very yeah. he had a very hindu attitude towards christianity yeah. Yeah, figures exactly. Bombay. yes <laughs> go figure right <laughs> you know so we you know as a family we're what we call culturally catholic right we celebrate christmas and easter and all of that stuff but I think in our in terms of i can speak only for myself i think for my mother uh you know she She's devout in her own way, and she does her own meditation practices outside of Catholicism. You know, she does Anapanasati and other things ah, like yeah. that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it, it's yeah. what we expect. It's a cultural yeah. mix Yeah. because that's what humans do. They just yeah. make these mixes. If it went into South America, it got mixed up with ayahuasca in Brazil, and it's legal. <laughs> it's legal to do ayahuasca. In fact, it's a public religion. In fact, we collaborate with scientists that are members of the ayahuasca church in Brazil. So, yeah, I, I just had to ask for the, uh, yeah. the whole cultural connection thing. I did, I did want to like explore a little bit more about the three gates that you mentioned, because it's, 
it's something that I talk about in, in my talks when we talk about this process of what happens when you also come out of uh, Nirodha. Because it is mentioned in a couple of places in the suttas where, you know, what, what happens to the mind. And in, in those references, what it says is that the mind makes contact, but that contact is empty, signless, and undirected. And the way I would look at it from a, a sutta perspective is that it's really referring to the Nibbana Dhatu, the Nibbana yes, element. That and is, that this could think. be, or that this is, the normal state of mind for one who has basically gone down the path and achieved it. So somebody's mind state is, for all intents and purposes, experiencing Nibbana all the time, not necessarily always in the unconditioned, but insofar as the fact that they are free of any of the taints, that their mind is empty of the taints, that there is a signlessness of the taints and it is not directed to the taints. So such a mind would probably have, uh, you know, no experience of any kind of taking things as a process of identification. So that mind is just seeing things as they are, right? In, in, you know, and this is one of the suttas that I often quote because it's such a succinct sutta, the Bahaya Sutta. In the hearing, there's only the heard. In the seeing, there's only the seen. In the sense, there's only the sense. In the cognizing, there's only the cognized. There's nothing else going on in terms of a projection of self, a projection of identification. It's all just happening as it happens. There's just an unfolding that's going on. An hey, unfolding Delson, of karma. <clears throat> Sorry if you still had more to say about that, but um, I, I'm curious. Um, you know, I think you've also been getting, um, in, enjoying this sort of nerding out about, uh, you know, what's going on scientifically in, in, in these states. Um, and so I'm curious to ask you if you have any thoughts on this sort of ongoing state with this sort of Nibbanic quality to it, what you think might be um, going on there from, from reading the, the, the science. And maybe I'd be curious to sort of speculate about this a little bit. And, and especially this idea also of direct perception, I think, is kind of fascinating also if you take what i said before seriously which is that all perception sensation is itself um, involved in an inferential process and that there is no such thing as perception and sensation without some sort of inferential past learning process unfolding i mean there'd be no way to recognize any objects in the world if there wasn't some past conditioning involved in that process and yeah i'm curious if that what, what you think about all that yeah, so the way, the way I would look at it is that possibly, and uh, you know, this is something we'd have to look into further, that is it possible to see, you know, looking at the, because you know, I kind of, quote unquote, I'm subscribed to the 10 fetter model. So the idea is that you know, with stream entry, the first three fetters are gone, and then they're weakened at Sakadagami, and, and so on and so forth. So is it possible for us to be able to say that maybe that these fetters are present as a result of how the brain interprets reality and that certain aspects of the brain are functional and then when you experience stream entry, they're not necessarily non-functional, but their, their function is directed in a different way. 
So that so, so for somebody who has eliminated all craving, all conceit, all, all of the fetters, that the systems or the parts of the brain that used to be part of that are now redirecting that energy towards just direct perception. And yes, I am, I am, um, I'm in agreement with you to an extent that, you know, perception is just recognizing it. Perception is rooted in some process of memory. So for the Arahat, they would still have their memory. They would still have all of the, the ability to perceive what's going on based on their subjective experiences and subjective past memories. So, I mean, now I'm bringing up something else, which is dependent origination, because I, I love to talk about dependent origination. But in there, that, that process of dependent origination is changed for the Arahat, right? Obviously, because there's no more ignorance. So the samskaras that arise, the formations that arise, and the consciousness that arises dependent upon them are no longer rooted in any kind of lack of mindfulness. There's like full attention, full clarity of mind of what's going on. The key difference is now that while that's happening, there's no ability for craving and clinging and becoming to arise. So everything that arises just stops at the level of feeling. And there's no identification going there. So there is perception, but there's no taking of that perception as me, mine, or myself. There we go. I think I think this is this this really um, sort of resonates maybe from a scientific perspective because you have these sort of layers of abstraction um, of 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 how the system sort of builds itself, which which maybe has some resonances with the links of dependent origination. But somewhere in this sort of hierarchy of the emergence of the mind from if you imagine simpler organisms and maybe they're sort of perceptual sensory capacities at some point humans evolved to have this sort of self that they prioritize in their uh, system so everything sort of in, in the sort of emergence of experience gets sort of um, reconceptualized in relationship to the ego to, to some sense of the self over time, which is just a representation of the body over time, and then some prioritization of that body over time, because through evolution, we learned that prioritizing our concept of this body over time makes us more likely to survive. And so what we, you know, perhaps evolved to do is uh, construct experience, but then quickly, very, very quickly reference it that reference that experience let's say the, the, the raw feelings or the early stages of the, the predictive process. To, to this ego construct and its sort of um, survival and benef benefit for itself and all the selfishness and potential conceit and, and the fetters that might come with that. So it seems like as, as an outsider, it's, it's really that sort of, sort of self-prioritization or self-referential process with regard to sensory experience that has been sort of blown away, you could say. Does that... Does that seem in the right direction? I would think so because you know what's what's going on there is like you're talking about like the ego as a as a survival mechanism basically, and so the mind is retraining itself, so to speak, to realize that that's uh, that's an impediment in the way that it functions in the world at this point in time. You know. Okay, so, we should. Yeah, we should write down the words Delson just said and inscribe mm. them in stone to be <laughs> revisited. There's yeah. a lot to what was just said. 
I agree. Yeah. Um, so let me, I warned you, I'd throw in a goofball <laughs> that we don't have to uh, <laughs> pursue. I suggest we not pursue. <laughs> How many basic kinds of networks do you think there are in the multiverse, in this universe, and any other universe that we can conceive of? <laughs> That's quite a mathematical <laughs> question. They, I can point you to a YouTube site where an eminent mathematical physicist, John Baez, and yes, he's related to Joan Baez. <laughs> and he's the inventor of the blog, actually. That's his claim to fame. And I can direct you to a website where he will say, I'm an applied category theorist. And he doesn't use these words, but I'm afraid that the planet might be fucked. And here's my contribution to unfucking it. And he will explain to you in language that you have to have a degree in math to understand exactly how many kinds of networks there are in the multiverse. There aren't that many, depending on how you want to break it down. Um, any kind of network, a network made of networks, a network made of networks embedded within networks. Oh, does this sound like Pratita Samutpada? Does this sound like connection arising through connectivity? It does. Is it? I don't know, but it sounds like it. Um, can we use it? It's highly abstract. It's actually too two lines that starts with something he calls Cirque, and it goes down from two sides. And if you understand what he's saying, you see one side shows you exactly how to think about any kind of network. How about a mode-dependent dynamical network that's changing its, I'm an agent, but I'm modeled as a mode-dependent dynamical network. What is uh, a nested mode dynamical, high, uh, 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 what did I say? <laughs> mode dependent uh, uh, a dynamical uh, entity. Um, okay, uh, assuming I'm that, what of the, let's just say, four basic kinds of networks do I use to model myself, my innermost world, my outer world, the relationship between all of the above? Uh, okay. So if you go down one side, you can see, well, there's roughly four kinds of ways that things can network. And this includes networks of networks inside networks that are functioning as mode-dependent 
systems. Mode means your mood. It means I want to talk to you now. I don't want to talk to you now. I'm feeling good. I'm not feeling good. And it's, I don't want to say hierarchical because that's only part of the picture. You can think of it as hierarchical. It's probably best to think of it as nested networks. It's networks all the way down. It's networks all the way up. And from a certain perspective, it's therefore agents all the way down and agents all the way up, but they're not agents. They're networks of connectivity of energy and information. That can be represented. Okay, so you follow Baez's reasoning on one hand and you see, okay, here's all the different kinds of networks. You go down the other hand, he's gonna say, here's, they all do the same thing one way or another. They stabilize a Lagrangian relation between some sort of fundamental duality that's a complementarity, like time versus space. You can go on and on. The math is that good. Um, if we believe in the Markov blanket free energy idea, and I sort of do, um, I'm going to have to uh, just quickly tell someone to call me back in a minute. Um, sorry about the interruption. Uh, damn, so much. I, uh, hold it just a second. <laughs> Peter, uh, can you call me back in about 15 minutes, please? I'm actually broadcasting on the air. Okay, I'll talk to you then. Sorry about that. Bye-bye. Okay. Um, so what kind of network is that? Well, it's a Markov blanket. So it's a Markov network. But that's a very specific flavor of network. It does certain things. There are more primitive networks and there are more sophisticated networks. The more sophisticated network is a, a reaction network. It does everything nature does. It can, it can do a lot. Let's just put it that way. It stabilizes a Lagrangian relation on a semi-algebraic set. And I know that means nothing to almost every human being, but it actually, in terms of the foundations of math, means a lot. I'll just say the words Tarski-Seidenberg theorem and go no further. Look it up if you're interested. Um, this gives us an, a way to model the connectivity, the pratita samutpada, on the inside and the outside simultaneously for this person. 
So if we use Markov networks to model uh, how the boundary is produced, and then if we use reaction networks, which are much, much more flexible, to model what Friston would call your inner model, and also to model what he would call the outer world. If we use those kinds of networks to model your innermost, which allows for integration of binary into semi-continuous. This is the whole point in Friston of talking about um, uh, the flavor of calculus he talks about, which is variational calculus. It's a way, and this is what the new AI does. It has differentiable updating of weights. That means you can make a continuous approximation of what is actually a discontinuous thing. So we can have continuous models for how the innermost world perceives things and the outermost world actually lies. So if we use the right kind of connectivity networks, we get the Markov blanket with Markov networks, but we get the inner and outer world with the more flexible uh, networks that solve. When I, when I say it's more flexible, I mean it, it's what you use to solve systems of partial differential equations. This is the nuts and bolts of science. So I think if we choose the types of connectivity mathematically in a sophisticated way, we can actually model an entity that isn't an entity, but is a connectivity, which is the Buddhist view of things. We can model that with polynomial functors and higher order monadic adjunctions. This is real math that I'm talking about. And I think it's directly applicable to the science questions we're asking here. Okay, I'm done. I just wanted to say, for, oh no, one last thing. If you put this math into what are called string diagrams, and then you use graph embedding with the new AI, you should be able to impart a science-based view of the world that will help with the alignment issue with the new AI. And at the same time, impart essentially a fully modernized Buddhist view of the world, which may not be called Buddhism anymore, but it is compatible with the Buddhist view, but perhaps has been put into a language so rigorous that you might not recognize that it really is that. But I think if we choose the networks right, we can pull this off. And 
if we give the new AI the knowledge that meditation teachers who are rigorous, I can tell Delson is that, I'm that. We've had other meditation teachers on your show, Steve, uh, you know who I'm talking about. The, we're in that same family. We try to think things through um, <clears throat> and not be dogmatic. So uh, I think we may be able to get the new AI to incorporate the spirit of science and the science of the spirit at the level of its theoretical mathematical engineering with univalent foundations and a homotopy type theory. Um, so I'm just saying I'm proposing this math, which actually does exist. It's newly minted polynomial functors, monadic adjunctions, and um, extra special commutative Frobenius monoids. These are actual things. I didn't just concatenate a bunch of weird words just then. There's a reason for each one of those words being there. And these are the tools of 21st century science. This is a whole different way of thinking about science. It's based on connectivity, as is it Buddhism, pratita samutpada. Just had to say for the record. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> I, I'm I'm experiencing such like I mean a, a lot of that of course went over my head as not not being a mathematician. I wish I could sort of understand it, but at a conceptual level, a lot clicked, and and I'm experiencing this big synchronicity right now because the last couple of months I've been obsessing over this. Um, potential that I feel intuitively that contemplative science and then sort of the marriage between what we've what, what has been happening which is contemplative science neuroscience and contemplative traditions and the insights that have come to that from that what that can contribute to the development of benevolent AI I think I think this is something this is what I'm working on and I've 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 got <laughs> a half dozen people with PhDs in computer science building now, as we speak, the world's first Breitbart that's designed based on the principles I just mentioned and actually uses the math. Yeah, that's that's extraordinary. Uh, not just, I, I really... that just <clears throat> says these words to impress people for credibility, yeah, yeah. but uses this math for the first time ever, ever for something this fucking important, and pardon my French. I, I, I'm so with you. And in, in terms of like true demonstrability and 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 cash value of, of these sort of contemplative traditions and the insights from there, and also the marriage between the contemplative science and, and these traditions, to be able to build a mind, a system that embodies those principles demonstrably and therefore behaves in a kind of benevolent way. I think that is like, talk about like proof is in the pudding that is it like if you people will know it when they see it and it's working exactly. so far we're actually it's like working much better than we thought it would uh well, i mean we're not any remotely near yeah what i'm talking you know what i'm aiming at but it's like we're just playing around we're 
Yeah. They're sophisticated, but we're using what everyone has access to. Uh, chat GPT and GPT-4 and all the other similar things that are coming out that are competition. We're yeah. just using the current technology, but we're thinking about it this other way. And I don't think anyone else is. Yeah, yeah. I, I would just love to at some point get together and spend a couple of hours on this because this is, uh, I think, so interesting. And also, you know, in thinking about things like Niroda cessations, Niroda Samapati, and especially the transformations that happen to mind and to the mind and also the 10 fetters and these kinds of things, if we can really understand what's what's going on in in when that happens computationally, then the promise there is that then we can, you know, implement these in a system that therefore doesn't accidentally develop the 10 fetters and, and cause the, um, it, yeah. the world to disrupt. We, right? So we we create we create a bot that has incorporated, and I think we're going to do it actually through graph embeddings, because that's how you make a net. Buddhism is about connectivity. And the math of connectivity is category theory. And it's the trending thing now. It's what the women that are coming into math they come into this field. The young people, they're asking about this field. Um, so uh, at a fundamental level, it already has some resonance with Buddhism. Can we make that rigorous to the skeptical eye of mainstream science? Mainstream science is mainstream science. It's the same in Tehran under the Ayatollahs as it is in Shenzhen, China under the Communist Chinese Party. It's the same science. Once it's part of science, it's in. One society is a feudal theocracy. The other one claims to be dialectical materialism. Their science on human happiness will agree incontrovertibly if we pull this off. And then it's just a few million dollars of server time. We offer it for free for everyone in all languages, supported by a grateful public, non-for-profit, no one makes any money. We solve the dana problem in Buddhism. How do we get paid for teaching? You want to be a professional teacher of mindfulness? How are you going to make a living? Well, you have to charge. Now the new AI, we don't have to charge for this expertise. We just replicate the information. It takes very little energy to replicate that information with the new AI. So if we can pull this off, we basically have a cause for sober optimism with respect to human survival and flourishing moving forward, that's not small. And people will see it if we do it, if we can do this. They'll know it when they see it. We, they, won't know, they, they won't know what a polynomial functor is. <laughs> then again, they don't know what the Maxwell, Maxwell field equations are either. 
but they do know how to flip on a light bulb, how to flip a switch, the public does know, how to press a button and talk to a meditation master that's going to draw your best future self out of you over the rest of your life for free. We can give this to the world now. We have to prove it works to the skeptical eye of science. So philosophically, Delson, I'm curious what you think and do you resonate with this possibility that future meditation teachers could be autonomous uh, AI bots and, and whether there's some, some sort of key human element or something within your sort of understanding from the suttas or personal experience that says that that is fundamentally not possible and that you have to have some sort of deep subjective first person phenomenology in order to be a true meditation teacher and guide people towards those insights that you value. So first of all, let me just say everything that Shinjin said went way over my head. I had no idea of any of the words that he used in terms of the theorems and, and everything else. But if I'm understanding correctly, uh, what he is saying is that uh, you could use the principles of dependent origination, which he's saying is connectivity in this case and, and, and networks. And essentially, if I'm understanding correctly, is create AI arahats, create- uh, a Modern AI arhat teachers that yes. would never go out of the bounds of the spirit of science, the essence of science, the method of science, and the attainments of science. It would be constrained by that. Yeah. But it's an yeah, arhat. And, and it knows some modern psychology things about how to do motivational interviewing, how to draw out from a person their narrative, their story. That's exactly, but actually, I don't think of it as independent. I see this as working with human teachers, not replacing human teachers. So for shock value, I'd say autonomous. But for practical value, it's actually just an improved book. In other words, yeah, I, a I human, that point. Yeah, please yeah. A human teacher is a human teacher, but they might give you a book to read. Now, if that book can interact with you, that's a little bit of better of a book, and that's now called an app. And there are meditation apps out there. But how about something like a meditation app, except it's you. It's actually you. It can even be your face and your voice if you want. But it's been imparted with three things. A map of how you see your best self within the context of your milieu. It's got that. And it let you do that on your own. It didn't make you a Republican or a Democrat, if you're in the US, it didn't make you on Russia's side or someone else's side if you're in, it didn't take any sides on that. But um, it did, if you're, if you think Trump is the type of person that should lead the world, it will make you the best of that type of person that you can be.
And we're going to start there. And it also has the, the knowledge of science and the knowledge of a whole path to liberation involving both absorption and insight and purification. It has all that. And it's you talking back to yourself. It's, it's not another avatar. It's not a, a necessarily a teacher. I mean, you could make it anything you want. For kids, it's going to, all over the world, especially Asia, it's going to be anime animals, maybe, that you're talking to. If you're an eight-year-old and you're getting this. But uh, if you're an adult, it can be you, your better self. And you know if that's yourself that you're talking to, or if it's something that AI is fucking with your view of the world. You made it, but we're honest, it has expertise you don't have. It understands the method of science, the achievements of science, it understands the spirit of science, it understands the essence of science, which I'm gonna say is quality information. It understands all that, and then it's got a complete map of enlightenment that's consonant with the world. And it understands what you want to be as a good Republican, as a good communist, as a good Muslim, as a good atheist scientist. Doesn't matter. We'll start with what you think the best of that is. And then we'll let you talk to the gods with a Yoneda embedding for your whole life. The Deva Loka may actually, in a sense, be accessible by modern science, not by believe it because God told me to tell you. Just saying. <laughs> I mean, that sounds really, really cool because, you know, to that point, uh, you know, I've been having discussions with people about this, like, what if we could uh, be able to, because that's just basically makes the job of a meditation teacher so much easier in, in essence. And I think it can be complementary, right? You have this AI system and then you have the human aspect of a, of a meditation teacher, whether they are enlightened or not, or whatever it might be. But the idea, you know, would be, what if we could be able to find the neural correlates to what happens when you are in certain states of mind, whether you are in the first jhana or the third jhana yeah, or the fourth jhana. Exactly. And then a teacher can actually see that without having to ask questions. And, it's, and then they might ask certain questions to kind of figure it out. But if you have that, it just makes the whole process that much more efficient, uh, that much more accessible uh, for a larger group of people. You got it. And then add to that the new biology. Um, if you look at what people like Michael Levin, uh, Lee Cronin, Sarah Walker, um, and of course, Carl Friston, these frontier biologists, um, 
they're talking about energy and information in networks in very new ways. And we're doing research with focused ultrasound that relates to the models that these other people are using about letting go of uh, priors with the predictive, uh, you know, uh, predictive uh, processing that you mentioned, Ruben. Um, we think that the same kind of mechanism of releasing priors um, happens when we use ultrasound, when we impart ultrasonic energy to modulate the flow of information in biological tissue. We may be impeding what's impeding the Nibbana Dhatu. The basic Buddhist model is not you go out and get Nirvana. You have a you have a sufficient procedure that eliminates the necessary block to Nirvana, the thing that's getting in the way of the okayness that's always there. I'm going to bet dollars to donuts that the okayness that's always there, that Ruben, you're saying, it's always doing some side of predicting, even if you're, unless you're dead, dead, dead for like two or three days, something's going on there, okay? I mean, maybe not two or three days, but you know, it takes like centuries for the full entropy of death to come on. You're still interacting while you're in the grave. I mean, it's meaningless to the human, but it's still going, it's still going on. Um, in any event, uh, we may, what, what we think that we can do to add a bow on the package of now having this machine doing what machines are good for, freeing up the human teachers to do what perhaps only the humans can do, perhaps. It's not just that. We can link it to EEG, you've already done it. Well, we may be able to facilitate, say, Belson, your student's ability to go into cessation with a, what we think is a pretty safe and ordinary thing. I mean, it's just ultrasound. It's done on pregnant women. It's done in a bladder scan. It's if you bang your head, they're going to do a Doppler ultrasound on you. It's ordinary stuff. We're just using it in a different way. You put this all together and you get a picture of something that could be just incredibly powerful. Hold it just a second. Uh, so I'm going to decline the call. <laughs> Sorry. So uh, if, if I may jump in here. Um, so I, I have a kind of question and, and maybe it's, it's very subtly a kind of a potential sort of challenge to this idea of using, you know, maybe a brain computer interface or some sort of neurofeedback or even sort of some sort of direct intervention in achieving the kinds of outcomes that we might be interested in. 
And the reason is that if you take something like cessation and the transformative qualities that come out of that, there's potentially an argument to be made that the reason that you get the sort of transformation is that there's some sort of deep accumulation of evidence for a new model before the event happens. So if you take, for example, if someone reaches stream entry, they have this like long process of, of meditation and changes to their system. Um, and then sort of some, some deep sort of disenchantment, this deep hardcore pursuit of the meditation practice that is just accumulating evidence against their sort of existing models and their existing model of self and this sort of recognition that this system is just not working anymore in the way that it's currently structured. And so all throughout the sort of, network nested networks of the mind there's this accumulation of, of new data towards a, a new kind of model and then when it sort of hits this sort of phase change moment of let's say stream entry for example you get this may, maybe a cessation and duh, duh, and then you have this sort of the insight the real restructuring of the system and so now if you imagine going through that process, but in an artificial way, and this is maybe also related to my sort of skepticism about some of the issues with psychedelics and things that can, can unfold. And, and so if you have this sort of intervention that gives you this phenomenology and this re-emergence, does the restructuring of actually the fundamental representations uh, or the representational processes in the system or memories, however you want to um, frame them, Will, will that still happen? Or will the phenomenology occur and then the system will re-emerge just as it was because it didn't have to go through the deep work of restructuring itself to the point of cessation and, and sort of software reset that we might associate with something like awakening. Um, so throwing that out there, what do you think, Shinzen? I awesome. think that... It is a bundle, what you just brought up is a bundle of very important and legitimate concerns. Um, I think I see what the individual strands are and how to begin addressing them. It's a very long conversation. It's the right question, meaning the answer is long. Yeah. And, and then the answer is, yeah, too. then, then the answer is short. First, the answer is very, very long. And then everyone just sort of catches on and you don't need that long answer anymore. So we've already been here for a couple hours. This is a half hour of me pontificating before you folks even get to say anything. Uh, there's a lot to say about what you just said. So can we remember it in full detail and maybe start up here next time? Steve, this is your decision because it's your channel. Of course. I would be greatly honored. That would be fine. Yes, I think this is sequel bait. This has sequel bait written all over it, Ruben, what you've just said. Oh, what a great term. Sequel bait. I've got to memorize that term. Hold it yep. just a second. I, I'm going to have to try to accept this call for a minute. We're leaving that in. <laughs> I'll let it. If 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 he's willing, I'll reveal his name, which Peter this is. It's not an unknown Peter. <laughs> well, this has been 
just absolutely extraordinary. I would be so delighted if we could get together again soon and continue this conversation. Shenzhen Young, Chelsea Fasano, Delson Armstrong, and Dr. Ruben Laconin, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.